Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, standing in for Fiona Godley this week. We're recording this on Tuesday, the 23rd of March, as the UK had planned to extend its rollout of vaccinations to the under 50s. Vaccine supply problems have delayed that. In Europe, the EMA says AstraZeneca's vaccine is safe, but individual countries are still holding back its use. To discuss all these things and more, I'm joined by our usual panel. Helen Salisbury. Hello, I'm a GP in Oxford. Partha Carr. Hi, Partha, consultant diabetes in Portsmouth. Nisreen Alwan. Hi, Nisreen, associate professor in public health in Southampton. And Matt Morgan. Hi everyone, I'm an ICU consultant in Cardiff. Let's start with vaccinations. Um, as I said, there have been a delay in the rollout and there seems to be some confusion about who exactly is eligible now. Helen, could you um, could you enlighten us a little bit about what's actually going on there? Well, there does seem to be a little bit of a hold-up in supply. Um, and what we've been told in general practice is that there will definitely be the supply to give second doses to all the people who've really had their first doses. Um, and we are being asked to concentrate on cohorts one to nine and aim for maximum cohort penetration, um, I quote. Uh, this means trying to get as many people as possible in those um groups over 50 and with underlying health conditions to have their vaccines, both the first and the second. And once we've done that, we will then start with the um, lower cohorts, the, the under 50s. But when I say we, that's also a really interesting question because I think a lot of GPs having really worked incredibly hard um, over the first three months of this year to get the, um, to get the first cohorts through, um, and we now have to repeat that again to do second doses. And most are thinking they can't take on the under 50s as well on top of that, which would basically mean doubling our amount of vaccine clinics. And I think it's a real shame because although originally it wasn't intended to be this way, it's ended up with 75% of vaccines being delivered in general practice. Um, and only 25% in the mass vac centres, which was not, I think that was not the proportions they originally thought about. Um, but the GPs have been really, really efficient. The problems we have are still to do with unpredictability of supply. So if you don't know from one week to the next what day your vaccine might come and when you've got to use it, you can't employ anybody extra to do the work. You can't set up a routine of always having the whole of Saturday that you're going to use and getting extra staff to do that. So you end up endlessly pulling staff from their existing jobs and we're all completely shattered. And the idea of doing more on top of what we're already doing is not doing. So I think an awful lot of GPs are now saying, we'll finish what we started, which is doing the over 50s, but we're not going to take on the younger cohorts. They're going to have to go to mass vac centres. Not sure how that'll play out because I'm not sure the capacity is really there or that the young people have the means to travel to them. But we'll see. 
That's really interesting, Alan. So, so now we're hearing some reports, I suppose, about some GPs who would have who've done really well, um, and then they've got some leftovers, overs, and maybe they, you know, is it possible to move on to uh, beyond uh, the one to nine now for GPs? Yeah, um, we did wonder because we um, one of our neighbouring practices, our primary care network, had invited a few. Um, we were told by our um, CCG in no uncertain terms that we weren't allowed to give them to that younger cohort um, and we should give them back to the CCG to be redistributed to areas which hadn't quite covered all the one to nine. So I think there's quite a hard and fast rule at the moment that we're not going um, to the under 50s yet. Mm. So the so the areas that haven't um, so they get redistributed to other areas, but that just in, means really a lot of more workload for those areas, I suppose, because they just have to catch up, don't they? Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, you can quite see it from patients' point of view that actually, mm. it, if there is a going to be a constraint on supply, yeah. um, ideally we would vaccinate those most at risk first, but. Certainly, there's a lot of work going on in our practice trying to contact people who haven't responded and trying to have individual conversations with each person who we haven't yet um, managed to vaccinate because it's probably about 10% of our um, of that group that we still haven't got to. And maybe they decided re- they don't want it. And that's really interesting. So you've got a whole load of people who are just dying to get it, but they can't get it now. And But then you're actually trying to increase uptake in the in these target groups isn't it so it's an interesting public health approach isn't it (laughs) absolutely and it depends a little bit on whether you're i mean i suppose if all the vaccine gets used all that we have is used as soon as possible that's absolutely Mm -hmm. great um and you're wanting to save the maximum number of lives what you really don't want to do in any situation is waste vaccine um so i hope that doesn't happen Yes, and at least we will have um, that cohort covered with with two vaccinations um, because there seems to be still some confusion amongst the public about uh, whether having your first vaccination is enough. Uh, Partha, you were commenting on that. Um, So from my point of view, I think at the moment uh, we need to be a bit careful about the rhetoric we all have, right? So we went for a one-dose strategy, delaying it, and, you know, good enough reasons for that, which is fair enough. Um, There have been many uh, people like myself who have said that we should have focused on the two doses with a more vulnerable population, but we are where we are, and probably it saved life, probably it hasn't. We don't know. Either way, it's where we are. The important point is, I think you see a lot of official channels I'm not just saying anybody, you know, Mr. Joe blogs on Twitter. We're talking about official channels being very, very gung-ho with the views that we have done uh, 28 million vaccines and 50% of the population is vaccinated. That is a wrong message, right? I think we need to be very clear that if you want to talk about a full vaccination schedule and for a moment, if you want to pause and say, look at, for example, countries which have got accelerated to those vaccine strategies like Israel or indeed in the States, They're coming out with guidelines as to what you can do with two doses, right? Now, that may or may not be right, but they at least have guidelines. The problem we have is that we're leaving the choice up to the individual because if the message is 
that we have vaccinated 50% of the population. The reality is that we have actually fully vaccinated 4% of the population, right? And I think we need to be very clear with that, that one dose was given to reduce your risk of going into hospitals and being ill, while the transmission data, etc., is much more dependent on the two doses. So there are two factors in play here. Factor one is us trying to sort of make sure that people don't get ill and we can reduce deaths absolutely is where we are at. And let's not forget, we've been backed into this corner because of the disaster of Christmas, right? That's why we had to go for a one-dose strategy. And now we are in the position saying, the people are saying, oh, we need to open up, we need to go out, you know, lockdown, let's, let's get rid of it. But the majority of the people haven't been vaccinated to the extent that you can drop your transmission levels. You still have the risks all at play. So I think that narrative needs to be very clear. And I think it's about time that whether it's JCVI, whether it's the CMO, whether it's the Secretary of State, I think they need to be clear that, yes, we have vaccinated people with this strategy to reduce your risk of hospitalization, but only 4% are in a position whereby they're fully vaccinated. And I think that narrative, if it's not clear, based on what I'm starting to see all around us, the weather's improving, you know, your first set of lockdown opens next Monday, you know, six people outside, then you have the next set, six people outside in the pub. I reckon, and outside, I understand outside is not a major headache, but I can assure you that outside will become inside very, very quickly. That's how people work. You have a few drinks with your friends outside, you go inside. And you can already see a lot of signs of that. So I think that's where the narrative needs to be very, very clear as to where we are. And we still have got a bit to go. Right. And I think we shouldn't lose all the hard earned gains. So that, that would be my view. Uh, Matt, the public health messaging in Wales has been a little bit different uh, during this. Is, is that message still coming across um, where you are? Yeah, there are changes. You can perhaps see there's one significant change, which is hairdressers are open. So uh, this is haircut number two in the last 365 days. Um, yeah, th- that's right. It is slightly different and it is probably more cautious in, in many ways. I think some of the problem about the messaging being difficult is this phrase that we've always heard, which is the reason we are doing this is to protect the NHS. And I guess people may now feel that because things are a lot better in hospital, which they are a lot better in some ways, not in all ways in any means, then why are we now doing this? And I don't know whether it's time for that narrative or that phrase to change or to be added to. You know, I know lots of people are worried about the impact of infection on long COVID, even if it doesn't result in deaths or mortality, for example. So where does this phrase protect the NHS fall into people's uh, lives now? And if we are saying that, you know, it's low risk, etc., of death, then why are we still doing these things? The reasons are clear. It's because of all the other things we talked about, long COVID, the impact on on the vulnerable. But I don't know whether this phrase is helpful anymore. Um, Nisreen, um, with all of this, we're going to have this vaccinated, potentially older population and an unvaccinated younger population. From a public health point of view, is that is that a worry for you? It's absolutely a worry for me from a public health point of view because we've got 
Um, and it's a worry because of two main things. One is what Matt mentioned about long COVID, a thing which is, is painful really for me to watch all of these discussions about opening up in the media. Um, you know, and, you know, everywhere by everybody and even in the official briefings without the mention of this huge burden that we now know it exists, which is long COVID, uh, which we don't understand. So it's not something that we can say, oh, it's okay. You can suffer a few months and then we know that you'll be all right after. We don't know that. Um, um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, that's why we need to worry about the number of infections, not only the number of hospital admissions and deaths. And also we need to worry about the number of infections because of the variants. Um, there are variants of concerns and the more, the more infection spreads, the more you give a chance for, um, the existing variants to spread, but also for new variants to develop. And then we go back, um, to the start. Um, so, so the, the, the narrative should shift into, um, and it should have shifted a long time ago, into that we, infection, you know, the narrative should be infection is not good. It's not only about, you know, yeah, saving the NHS from collapsing and hospitalization, hospitalization and deaths. And, and that narrative hasn't um, shifted. And I think going back to Partha's point about vaccination, I mean, sometimes it's just words. Why can't we say we've, these people are partially vaccinated? I mean, you add one word, in the consciousness of millions of people. So that goes in into their kind of risk-taking behavior and, you know, judgments that they make. Um, it's really important to, to think about the language when we're talking about these public health measures. Um, it's, it's, so, so yes, I mean, I suppose worry, worrying and, um, and, you know, we will see more data, I suppose, from things like the ONS infection survey in terms of the infections in young groups and children now that schools have been open. Um, to see the extent, but the, 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 the signs are not, um, reassuring, um, in terms of, um, the rise of infections in these groups. Obviously, we've got a new thing, which is, um, the testing in secondary school, the lateral flow test, um, in secondary school. So how much of that is being picked up because of the testing, but, but also, um, the rise of infection is happening in younger age, um, in younger age groups as well. Where, so there's no lateral flow testing in primary schools. Um, recommended, uh, but there is there are a lot of flow tests that are being picked up by parents and households of, ch of children. So there's a lot of testing going on, and I think the what will give us the um, the um, the uh, less biased answers would be things like the pre you know prevalence surveys to see how the infection is uh, rates are changing. Nisreen, do do we know much about long COVID in uh, in children or in the under twenties? Yeah, so this is a, a very contentious issue, really, because obviously parents worry about this. So there have been there were some statistics, um, preliminary or, or as they call them, experimental statistics published from uh, the ONS based on the ONS um, COVID infection survey, which showed that um, um, around thirteen um, to fifteen percent of children have at least one symptoms five weeks after um, infection with COVID. So these are people who've tested, children who've tested positive within the infection survey um, and out of a denominator of, you know, everybody, including asymptomatic um, infections. So that was worrying. There are reports from other countries like Italy um, and Sweden of, you know, uh, children developing long COVID. 
but the but we're even even though long COVID as a whole, I would call it as still a neglected research area. Hopefully, we'll f- we'll see more research. But long COVID in children, in particular, um, we it's 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 surprising that we don't astonishing really that we don't know more more about it at this stage. That's something that really needs attention. Um, and I think there's there's this contention about where whatever if if you ever talk about it, then you could you seen as um all the, so there's a narrative that could paint you as scaring, uh you know scaremongering and you know being an alarmist. Uh, but but we need to know these things. You know we need to know um, how common it is. Um, and that's why I keep going on about counting long COVID. We really need to quantify it properly, and that's still not happening. There are estimates based on research studies. Um, but that there's no surveillance system that is telling us, um, you know, the amount of long COVID, whether it's children or adults. I, I really would would like to see some indicator on this coronavirus dashboards, which also has number of vaccinations. Now, so at least one indicator is about morbidity from COVID, um, and there's mm. nothing. And there's still lots of confusion about what long COVID actually is do you think we are getting any closer to to being able to i don't know define it or or break it into different syndromes or or anything like that i I mean i think i think there are different um pathways i mean the the severe ill and matt will know as well you know people who have gone to icu or even been hospitalized for a long time even if not admitted to um intensive care who would um, you know, long COVID, what it's being called long COVID is quite common, which is basically they don't go back to their usual health, uh, you know, for many months after discharge and a very big proportion of them uh, don't. And there have been studies around that. Um, there's also um, the evidence that you get um, higher risk of um, other, um, you know, diagnosis. So heart disease, kidney disease, liver disease, diabetes, following infection with COVID, Um so is that long COVID? I would argue it is because there's evidence that there's higher risk of this these other pathologies and organ damage happening after COVID-19. Although um, also there is discussion, well, actually, now you've got an alternative diagnosis. So that's not <laughs> long COVID. But, it, you know, we if it's causal and obviously we, you know, we need to um, apply our, our kind of research epidemiological methods to look at this. But it's hard. It's all observational evidence. Um, then then it should be under the umbre- umbrella of, of long COVID. And then there is the, 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 this, this uh, other group with um, really unexplained symptoms who have had some basic investigations um, and maybe labelled and coded as long COVID by the GP, maybe referred to long COVID clinics, but there's nothing to pin down, but they're unwell, um, unable to resume their normal activities and, and some of them unable to go back to work. Um, and there's, you know, very little understanding of what uh, would help them, would, would make them better and what prognosis um, there is. And I, and I just want to touch on something um, that I think um, um, been emotional for me personally, but for other people long COVID, as I can see from the social media reaction is uh, we all had to fill in the census on um, Sunday or many of, many of us did, I suppose it was due on Sunday. And uh, there was this question about um, uh, long-term um, health and do you expect something about expecting to be uh, to have a condition in the next 12 months and people were asking each other well what are you putting am I, are we expecting it's really painful to think particularly for people who had no uh, pre-existing conditions were in excellent health before to think well am I now um, living with a chronic condition 
am I expecting it to last? Um, and also there was the, the, the question about how does it affect your daily activity? So I think a lot of people were faced with this, you know, f- faced with this, um, uh, you know, dilemma of, you know, so now I've mm. moved, now I'm filling forms differently and, you know, I'm, you know, seeing myself differently and other people would see me differently. So it's a huge mm. burden. Um, Partha, uh, as the stream said, there is um, the signal of uh, kind of post-COVID um, diabetes. Is that, uh, do we know anything more about that? Yeah, we're tracking the data. So we're doing a, a significant number of data sets around diabetes. So, for example, looking at outcomes, like what's happened to admissions, amputations or diabetic ketoacidosis. Part of that also is tracking diabetes uh, diagnosis or new diagnosis. So that's very much in the pipeline at the moment. So we are tracking it um, based on what I think at least I've been seeing and picking up. I wouldn't be surprised if in the not too distant future, we turn around and say, if you have had COVID, you really should have an HbA1c checked to see if you've got diabetes or not. Um, if you look at the theories behind it about the, we talk about the pancreatic injury, etc. cetera, the, the billion dollar question is whether it's transient or not. So we have seen a fair few patients who have come in, had COVID, developed new diabetes, requiring huge doses of insulin. I'm not talking a small. I mean, you're talking huge doses on a sliding scale. And then coming off and then ending up on much lower doses or coming off it. So I think there's much to play out in this field. Uh, but my, my gut instinct tells me there is certainly a rise. The billion-dollar question again is what type? Is it an immune-driven type 1? Or is it simply because of pancreatic injury, which settles, i.e. degree of type 2? So we will find out, but data is very much in the in the tracking phase. So I suspect that will all contribute towards NICE further updating their long COVID guidelines. I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out and says as part of the check, HbA1c check will fit in. And Partha, what's the overlap about, We've I've read this week about an average weight gain of a kilo to two kilos a month in lockdown. So presumably the people who are, particularly ill with COVID, may not well be getting that weight gain, although they may be losing muscle mass and fat percentages and so on. Yeah, there have been quite an interesting few things. You know, if you look at the data sets, which is due to be published soon, so type 1 diabetes, if you take type 1, previous type 1 diabetes, the ketoacidosis admissions have actually gone down, right? Now, there's a combination of factors for it, uh, because that tends to happen a lot in the younger group, right? 1925 or thereabouts, which is the biggest spike. Now, socialization has gone down. Universities have gone down. On top of that, we've had a massive explosion of remote monitoring throughout the NHS. That's been a big thing. So all of those somehow have combined together and the rates have gone down. Type 2, however, different kettle of fish. Now, type 2 normally doesn't present with DKA, now, but they are. Now, is that because of COVID spiking then putting those type 2s into a much more higher degree of pancreatic injury? We don't know. And as far as the weight question goes, we've had two sides of the scale. We've had one group have gone like, right, this is my moment to, you know, really tackle my life. You've had that angle. And then you've got the other side, which has been like, God, life's so depressing, man. Right. I'm going to just going to get some pizzas in and I can't be bothered. So you have had both. And I think the mental health aspect of it has been big in a lot of people. So you, we are seeing that sort of flip side of it. So I think it would be quite interesting to see where the overall HP one, but we've got plenty of reports coming in from primary care of patients they're now starting to pick up. I mean, don't forget some of them haven't had a check for nearly 18 months now. 
with higher weight, higher HbA1c, etc. So, um, you know, we are very proud of the diabetes outcomes that primary care and the NHS delivers across the country. We are some of the best in the world as regards the NHS and diabetes goals. I suspect we might be taking a fair few steps backwards after the end of this. I was just going to say it's going to be interesting. The um, if we are advised to do annual HbA1Cs, for example, on people who've had COVID, quite a lot of my patients who had COVID don't know for sure that they had COVID because all through the first wave, nobody had a test or very few people had a test. So if you weren't ill enough to go to hospital or to be admitted to hospital, you didn't get tested. Um, so there's, that's going to be quite a lot of uncertainty about that, uh, which I guess maybe means that we, if there's a public information thing, if you had COVID, this should be checked, um, then we may be doing a lot. But I, I suspect it'll stay under the radar for quite a long time for quite a lot of people. And, and, and that is an issue with long COVID um, because, like you say, people didn't have a test in the first wave. So people might be experiencing ill health and some sort of strange symptoms, but not even them attributing it to long COVID. The people who've um, um, been going to their GPs and saying, well, I, I think I've got long COVID is because they thought they've got long COVID because of the acute infection. Now, if you had a, an untypical acute infection or even an, a typical, but at the time you thought it was untypical because of this uh, narrow range of symptoms. And then a few months later, you're having health problems. Um, and you're yourself don't think, um, you know, that that's good. That's, you know, that's long COVID. And that's the problem with long COVID as well, is that there is this, um, you know, even with studies. So we've got this narrative or, or we've got this traditional way of, of saying, well, in order to track long COVID, we'll go and look at health records and we'll look at who gets referred to long COVID clinic and who gets diagnosed by their, G by their GP. But because you didn't have that testing at the start, that's still a very a flawed and biased, um, a relatively biased way of looking at it. Because I suspect there are loads of people out there who will be developing um, new things, new symptoms, getting investigated for things who probably had COVID, didn't um, make the link or didn't even realise they've had it. So how it's a huge challenge for public health, surveillance, epidemiology, how do we quantify this problem? Because we do need to quantify it because will it'll eventually hit us, you know, so we, we, do, we do need to know. And one, one last thing I want to say about this is it's, been, it's really surprising, and I think we need to take this lesson to other pandemics, how our surveillance system are so underprepared in relation to uh, the uh, post-acute and the chronic effects of a pandemic compared to uh, you know, tracking the acute effects of the pandemic. And therefore, we're not really reacting um, in relation to these effects. We're only reacting in relation to the very acute effects. And you will have noted, I'm sure, that the uh, the, the, the um, real world decrease in the budget for public health that's just come out in the last budget, that actually um, local authorities who run the public health system, who do the, the on-the-ground or traditionally have done the on-the-ground surveillance of who's got what infectious disease, have had their budget cut again. So, Matt, I think it's traditional uh, in this podcast to come to you for um, a little bit of a science update. Uh, and you were just telling us about um, some some new information that's come out. 
Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say, even since the early days in COVID, you know, it, it was an interesting disease which did new things. And we noticed early on that one of the big things that patients suffered from was thromboembolic disease. In fact, I think the first patient I cared for with COVID had a really huge mural thrombus. Uh, and, you know, that was unusual and strange at the time. And now we know why, effectively. And I think in ICU and certainly in medicine, I think as a whole, there's been a big tradition of finding a problem and then using what we understand about physiology and anatomy and pharmacology to try to fix that problem. But time and time again, what we found is the common sense thing to do doesn't always lead to a common good. And this may be for blood transfusions in ICU. If people were anemic, we thought, well, we should give them blood. And now we know if you do that, they die more often than if you don't. It's the same with oxygen to some extent. You know, give them more oxygen, that's not good. So with thromboembolus disease, lots of centres all around the world were starting to increase the amount of prophylactic anticoagulants that people were given to prevent thrombus, and that makes intrinsic sense. But actually this, uh, or last week, a big trial came out from a group in Iran, from Tehran, uh, looking at this issue and again we've been surprised that there's no benefit in using what we call intermediate prophylactic anticoagulation and we've previously seen from other studies that there's probably no benefit either in using full anticoagulation so we're stuck in this place where thromboembolus is bad it causes problems we use treatments to help it and that doesn't help uh, which is interesting I guess one other thing to say, this study came out of Tehran, actually, and it's fabulous to see studies coming out of other places, especially places with lots of other complexities and problems, published in high-impact journals. This was in, in JAMA, actually. One other thing to say, I suppose, this month is that the recovery trial in the UK has stopped recruiting to the aspirin arm uh, for, for COVID. Now, we don't know what that means. Uh, we don't know whether it means that's because it's good or because it's bad. It's probably hit its pre-specified statistical points, but there is some observational studies from the US looking at aspirin, and it may be that aspirin is helpful in reducing this thromboembolic component of the disease, but we'll have to wait to see uh, when the recovery study is published. So it's probably, hopefully, going to be an interesting month for thromboembolic complications of COVID. I think that the um, the thromboembolic uh, is a word that suddenly the uh, the patient population is beginning to learn um, because of all the worries about the AstraZeneca vaccine and the pause in the rollout in Europe and um, the uh, venous sinus thromboses that seem to cluster. Um, so I think clots are going to be. Um, a subject of a huge amount of scrutiny, not just from doctors, but also from, from patients. We haven't had a huge um, refusal rate for the, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is what we've been using in the surgery recently. But we do have a few people who are saying, I'm now not confident um, and I need more information, particularly because of this, these worries about, about blood clots. And it's a kind of... It is a really interesting situation saying, well, if you get COVID, you're really, really at risk of having disease from blood clots. But if you have a vaccine against COVID, 
is there a one in one and a half million chance of, of ha- suffering from that as well? Um, yeah, and just to you know, bottom that out, my reading of the literature so far, although this is developing and things change, is that that rate is no higher overall than the baseline rate in intensive care. We do see people coming in with central venous sinus thrombosis. We see it, you know, one a month, for example, uh, and the baseline rate is there. And what the WHO and the European Medical Medicines Authority and others have said that it's no higher than the baseline rate. And I guess even if it is higher than the baseline rate, which I think at the minute it isn't, as you say, a much better way to get a blood clot is by getting COVID. Uh, so even if it is, this risk has to be seen in context uh, of acute disease. So I think this has been fascinating. Do you know why? I tell you, because I have always, ever since I was in college, been fascinated by politics, right? The, the whole nature of it, how people operate. And this has been a very good example of clinicians need to learn how to operate in that space. This data is a very good example. When the data hit, we had a lot of people straight away jumping onto the conspiracy wagon, right? One way or the other. It was about... Or the EU are being good or no, this is about the British thing. It wasn't. It was a genuine cluster case that absolutely the relevant bodies were quite right to look into and then come out and reassure, right? This is exactly what we would have done in the UK by the MHRA if something like this had come out or anything comes out. That's their job. But for about 48 hours, very respected clinicians, and I think this is where social media can be quite bad, is about rather than pausing and waiting for those relevant bodies to, it was all about, well, it was because of the Europe. And it, and what came into that mix is our own confirmation bias, depending on which way we had voted for, the, you know, staying in Europe, going out of Europe. And that's not helpful because people forget the wider population don't understand statistics and science and the intricacies and the p-value and the confidence intervals to interpret. The headlines stick. It's important, the narrative, you know, Nisreen mentioned about the narrative of simple word, partial vaccination to vaccinated. Things like this stick. And I think it's not a criticism. I think I've just been fascinated to see how our own confirmation biases click into gear with these things. It's really strong, isn't it? Whereby... If it doesn't fit our narrative, it's absolutely many, many years ago, you know, George Bush said it, and this was before the world was so divided. You're either with me or you're against me. And that is social media. But there I, is I, no middle path. Yes, but Partha, I was also very disappointed, as as you were, by some uh people one would might have thought would know better. Um, assuming malintent or assuming some sort of political shenanigans and not respecting the science of other countries. Other countries do science really, really well. Tehran does science really well. Um, and, and they were, they had a, a proper regulatory ar- arrangement in those countries. They did their science. They said, hold on a second. We need to pause. And that was completely valid. Um, and I, yeah, I, I share your disappointment with commentators who decided that there was some sort of malign intent there, which there really wasn't. And I think I see this, and probably Matt will say that, and Nizreen will say this as well. And throughout my career, I've seen the sense of exceptionalism that science done in this country is amazing. 
and everywhere else is a bit like, mm, not sure about this. This is not right. This is not correct. Everybody, everywhere has got science. Everywhere has got flaws. Our data has got flaws. That's how science works. You know, academics are academics. It's not defined by what flag you have in your background or not, right? And I think that's the way I always say is that science is science. And I think this is, you know, via this podcast, you know, this is my appeal to all clinical colleagues. Take a pause. We, we are supposed to be that scientist minded as well, but we should probably take a pause and then make the call. And I think this is where, because the impact, this is not just us discussing a paper or a really obscure paper. This has got massive wide ranging implications on the public. And if we turn around and say there's a conspiracy or, well, I'm not sure about the AstraZeneca vaccine, you, even if you knock off, as Helen said, three or four people who are now unsure, you have now compromised those three or four people's well-being by doing that. And I think we just need to be a bit more mindful of that in wider spaces, especially with social media and the rest of it so, so much all around us. Yeah, and the truth is there's no such thing as the science. You know, there's lots of different science. And importantly, there's scientists. You know, science is made by people, by humans. And so, you know, there's natural variation. There's natural questions. I've said before, you know, that saying I don't know and uncertainty is what drives science. Uncertainty doesn't mean it's wrong. Uncertainty means it's right, actually. And it means that you go on and question. And when there's no uncertainty left, there's no need for science anymore. Um, And we need it now more than ever. So, as we said at the beginning, it's been exactly one year since the UK went into lockdown. Um, And in that year, we have seen a lot of science happen, as we've talked about, and that filtering through that lens of uh, partisanship and politics um, that Partha was just mentioning. So I wonder if we could, uh, to wrap this up, just take a moment to sort of reflect uh, on the last year. Helen, perhaps I'll start with you. Okay, so um, my high points of the last year have clearly been the development of the vaccines and running the vaccine clinics and actually that feeling that that there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think my low points of the last year have been repeatedly and so many times this feeling of silent screaming or sometimes more audible screaming that mistakes were being made and made again and um and you could kind of horribly predict that more people would would die and more families would be bereaved because stupid decisions were being made which most of us could see were barn door stupid and i i can't i wish i could put it more delicately but i don't think i can Mm. Nisri. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could go on. This year has been very life-changing for me. One thing I want to say I've learned, for sure, um, a bit much more than I did before. Um, um, This is a lesson for me. Never assume people know what they're talking about um, just because they look or sound like they know what they're talking about. (laughs) Uh, And I think that's something... um, happened to me at the start um just this you know just this time this year uh, last year or just before when we as a country were taking a really different path to the pandemic 
the, to other countries and to what we know, to the simple principles of kind of pandemic management and, and, and all of that in terms of, uh, you know, um, uh, there was this talk about the herd immunity by natural infection and the, all the testing, community testing stop. And it was just a shock to me. I was like, what is going on? What, what is it? What is it that they know that I don't know? And then I speak to other people, um, you know, in public health and, you know, the other scientists and they, they're in shock as well. And, um, and we don't know. So the first thing we did is we, um, did, uh, there was a lot of silent screaming, like Helen said, but we, it kind of went a bit beyond that. And then we started, um, talking and saying things and gathering people together just to say, we want to see what you're basing these decisions on. Uh, we want to see that evidence. Um, and then, and then from then on, I think, um, it became really clear, um, that it, there's so much uncertainty, like Matt said. And, and actually I became very, um, disappointed by the amount of certainty that was displayed throughout and still continues to be displayed. Um, um, there was a lot of talk uh, within even public health at the time that you shouldn't appear divided. You should have a unified message in terms of, you know, the policy and what's going, um, you know, what's happening because people lose trust um, if you appear divided. And um, and I think um, that's really unhelpful way to put it, um, you know, to actually acknowledge uh, uncertainty like uh, some of the other countries who really succeeded much better that to, in controlling the pandemic did. Um, is 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 something that we um, miss doing and still linking to what Partha said with that sense of exceptionalism that we know better. So one positive thing I think that came out uh, from um, lockdown and the new routines in the virtual world is really more equality in terms of participation. There are people who've been um, routinely excluded from a uh, important and big conversation, right? Uh, because um, people who've got caring responsibilities, underrepresented groups who couldn't be there at the right time and place um, to uh, um, to bring in their views. And that really changed um, in this pandemic. So there are all sorts of issues with the virtual work and, you know, the, the workload. But I think it's really important that we don't lose this, um, that we continue um, to... Um, to, to get to get the views of people who can't make it in person in certain events there's really there, there was a really quality issue in academia and medicine and all sorts of i think uh, uh disciplines um so that's something to really hold on to and not keep go you know not rush into the back to the old normal where uh there, there'd be there's more exclusion partha so um, I'll probably start with, like Helen, with the high points. I mean, the high points, personally, um, you know, my mom and dad came here for their 50th, got stuck. So I managed to spend more time with my parents than I have done the last 25 years, 30 years, which was brilliant. I'm not sure they were very pleased, but I was. Um, so they were itching to go home, but at, at the end of it. So that was great. I think professionally, I don't think I could have ask more. We have been able to really forward digital technology in these times. So that's been a massive silver lining to the cloud and diabetes and all that sort of stuff. I think if you if I look at it, I think that the big thing that has stood out for me has been I have taken everything in the stride, I probably took everything in my stride till October, November. I think December and Christmas was probably where all my disappointments and all my hurt came to bear. If I'm very honest, that was entirely preventable. And you know what? I don't, you know, it's quite easy to sort of say to politicians, yeah, of course. And at the end of the day, they will take the final 
you know, fall, so to speak, as to the responsibility. But as I've said before, I think my disappointment was in the senior team across the patch who are, because I don't believe the job of leaders is only to just be a clinical academic and just advise. It's their job in those positions to be able to influence the decision makers. That is part of leadership, I'm afraid. And I say that as somebody who does a national leadership role. If you don't have that skill, you're not doing your job. Just saying that, well, I was on the sideline, nobody listened to me. I'm sorry, but that's just not good enough because if you sincerely believed that opening Christmas would kill lives and you didn't come out and make your stand on that, then I'm afraid you're culpable. And uh, and I think I would like to see people apologize for that because there are many lives lost during the Christmas, January period. January, I'm sure Matt will tell you, January was so tough. I mean, I forget ITU, of course, they've been through the absolute brunt primary care. What I've seen in my life, I've never seen my career on the wards. And, you know, that was preventable in my book. So that my reflection is we could have done that better. That phase, as I said, till November, what happened, happened. That December, January, February, we absolutely could have done better. And we didn't. Um, So I think we hopefully we learn from it. And as Nizreen said, I think we need to open up the debate about people. As regards their views, you should not shut them down as oh, just a dissenting voice and giving an opinion. You're in a pandemic. You will make mistakes, right? And that's absolutely fine. Leaders, you know, people have no problem with their leaders if they turn around and said, I got it wrong. In a pandemic, nobody's going to go like, oh, my God, how dare you? It is what it is. But not to sort of look at other countries eight, nine months into a pandemic and let it run. I'm afraid that was a big, big low point for me. I personally seeing everything and I lost a lot of respect for people as we went along. So my final bit would be, I think we learned something from this. Some things have shown up in very clear. Uh, I think that the learning points, I think, would be important for the system. I think it shows what primary care can do. In the diabetes world, we've said this still we go blue in the teeth. There's one reason diabetes uh, diabetes outcomes are some of the best in the world because, well, most of the work is done in primary care, right? So support primary care. I think it shows the importance of public health. You know, you you back public health properly and they can do a job. And I think lots of other things like the race issues, uh, the sexism, etc. That's come out much more into the fore and that's good in one way. People are more vocal about it. So there's been lots of good and we just come out of it. I just hope it sustains after this because we've got lots of tough times ahead of us. So that's probably my reflection of the 12 months. Some good, some not so good, but I suspect that's the same for a lot of people. Yeah, thank you, Partha and Matt. Yeah, wow, 365 days, two haircuts, no trips, uh, a lot of sadness, some joy. Um, I've got four things to say, really. My children love Harry Potter, and I think this year has been the ultimate sort in hacks life. Lots of people who I thought were in Gryffindor turned out to be in Slytherin. And that's not a bad thing, particularly. We need both. But it's really brought um, people's true selves sometimes out in, in good times and bad. And I think that's been valuable in many ways. There's a saying in ICU by Malcolm Fisher, who's a, a very famous ICU consultant, that don't just do something, stand there. Uh, and that's quite impactful in medicine. Sometimes doing nothing is important, but... As lots of people have said, Christmas especially, I think those are the times that it's not okay to don't do anything and just stand there. That's when something needed to be done, actually. 
Um, you know, Groucho Marx said Christmas doesn't come with a sanity clause. And this Christmas did not come with a sanity clause. You know, it was clear what needed to happen. Uh, it didn't happen uh, for reasons which are unclear. Uh, and I think that would probably be a low point for me. And of course, what then led in December and January. Uh, the third thing to say is the inverse care law is 50 years old, I think, uh, this this year. In fact, I was delighted. I was sent this this image. Uh, I'm showing the camera an image by uh, the wife of Dr. Julian Hart, who's a GP uh, in, uh, in South Wales, actually, who came up with the inverse care law. And she sent a lovely letter um, to the unit and the intensive care unit where I work. And I think that's true more than ever. You know, in Wales, we have the scars of our industrial past. And sadly, it's the people who need the most who are affected the most. But, you know, to end on some joy, actually, there's been joy this year too. You know, I've spent time with my children I hadn't spent before. I've learned more about rivers through homeschooling geography than I ever wished to. Science has been amazing. Digital has been amazing. And there's been less travel for travel's pointless sake. Uh, and digital has transformed that. And those are some of the things I'll, I'll try to hold on to. My thanks to Helen Salisbury, Nisreen Alwan, Pathakar, and Matt Morgan. We'll be back with another one of the Second Wave podcasts in a couple of weeks. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We always want to hear from our audience. So if there's anything you'd like us to discuss or feed into the program, please do get in touch via social media. We're BMJ underscore latest on Twitter or via email. Details are on our website, bmj.com. So until next time, thanks for listening.